Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. For those of you who've been following along in the study of Exodus, uh, we, first of all, learned in the first part of this book about the Exodus in that the children of Israel came up out of Egypt. And I tried to stress with you when we did the teaching of that, that that was given to us so that we might understand the work of God as far as his being a redeemer and a savior. More specifically, that we might be able to clearly identify our God. And in the course of, um, in the course of getting to Exodus 20, which is kind of in the middle of the book, God gave Ten Commandments. Now, it follows and is logical that if God is God, he should give commandments, and that men as men, they should obey God, and that they should obey these commandments. But as we have discussed uh, in, in previous times, and what is still a fundamental issue today, it still remains is how many of those commandments are still binding? Are those commandments still binding? There's a way more fundamental question that should be answered is, is there really a God of Israel still? Because if there really is a God of Israel still, then no matter what commandment he gives, it still stands. It still stands. He is, he is the God. But when you begin to destroy his identity uh, from the Exodus, then you can begin to reshape and make a God, and then you can change commandments. You see the, see the, see the logic there? And that's the reason why I tried to point out to you in Exodus 20, we have three different versions of the Ten Commandments running around in the world. It's because they're trying to change the God. If they can change the God to something else, then they can change the commandments. You see the logic there? And so I always remind people, be very careful about it's, it's a good thing to keep commandments, but more importantly, make sure that you're following the commandments of the God, the real God, not another God. Because you can be religious and keep commandments and have the wrong God. And this God says in this book, the God of Israel, he says the first commandment is, I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of Egypt. That's the first commandment, which means, believe me, I'm the God you're supposed to be following. And interestingly enough, within Christianity today, and more specifically within Catholicism, that's not the first commandment. Isn't that fascinating? The first commandment to them is, thou shalt not have any graven images. But the first commandment that this book teaches, this God said, I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of Egypt. Now the reason I emphasize that is because this same God who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, said, make a tabernacle. Make a dwelling place for me, where my spirit would be. And whereas you may think, or you may possibly consider, well, those things that happened to Israel, that's for Israel, I'm Gentile, I, that doesn't really affect me. I have news for you. <laughs> I have news for you. This pattern of the tabernacle, who was made in Jerusalem, is the pattern of the tabernacle that's supposed to be in your heart. Same God, same tabernacle, same spirit. Now we say that God is unchangeable. We say he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
But brethren, this is very subtle. Just because you say that doesn't mean that you can get away with acting like that, acting something differently. The fact is that the God who wrote these words through the hand of Moses, who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, who made this tabernacle, is the one true God. He is. He's proved it. And Yeshua, the Son of God, is not in conflict with any of this. In fact, he is the living Word of God. He's the living tabernacle and dwelling place of God amongst us. It's his, it's, he is the manifestation of God in our midst uh, with us as well. This last portion now, as I mentioned to you before, the book kind of talked about the Exodus, now it talks about the tabernacle. It's trying to tell us who the real God is, that he's Redeemer and Savior, and this is how he makes his tabernacle with men. And I've said to you before in the previous weeks when we started this, for the life of me, I do not understand why God wants to live with us. Why would he want to make his tabernacle with us? Well, obviously, he loves us much. And he must see something that attracts him, and it must be a decision of his will to do it, because I can assure you we don't deserve him in no way, shape, or form. But he has made a way so that he might come and dwell with us. This particular chapter and this particular Cedric portion begins at verse 21 and says, This is the number of the things for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were numbered according to the command of Moses, for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Now Bezazel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And with him was Oliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and a skillful workman, and a weaver in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and fine linen. It's interesting that God establishes the Levites and the sons of Aaron within them, that they have the purpose of ministering the service of the temple and the altar, but it was other men who were called who made the things that they minister with. It doesn't give us a whole lot of reason why, other than it says that God filled them with the spirit, with the skill of a workman, and craftsmanship, and all manner of craftsmanship, and then he appointed them for the purpose of constructing and making those items for us. And that really brings us to the whole point, or the title of this, this portion. This is the number. Now, I don't know if your Bible, if you have a slightly different, but the word number is what the name of this portion is. And in the Hebrew, it's called pekude. Pekude, it actually gets repeated here, a number, that which is appointed, that which has been commanded. In other words, these are the things that God has said. And it's a very kind of interesting word. The word appointment means that there has to have been an authority who caused these things to be. There has to be someone who was appointed who carried it out. And in effect, it really brings us back to the fundamental things that I'm trying to give you as an overview of the book. There is an appointer and there is the appointed. The appointer is God, the God of heaven and earth, the appointed are men. 
And there is this relationship that exists, and it only exists when we keep in those places, and we do it after that manner. The fundamental problem, the fundamental problem with religion is they reverse the roles. The appointed becomes the appointer. And they're more concerned about having authority over than being under authority. And religious men want to be in authority over. But a humble man wants to be under authority before the Lord. And that's really what this passage is about. It's really about that those that were under authority completed these things so that he who appoints them set them up for our benefit. Now, normally I don't uh, spend a lot of time in the Haftorah portion, which is there's a, count, there's a portion of the other writings that goes with each of the Torah portions. But tonight I'd like to spend a little time in the Haftorah portion to reinforce uh, earlier what I've tried to teach you about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the picture. It's the picture of our faith. How is it possible for us to come into the presence of God? How how is this possible for us to dwell and to be with God, for God to be with us? By what manner, by what system is it? And God uses symbols and things to explain heavenly and spiritual things to us. And God established the tabernacle so that he might explain to us his great desire to dwell with us, and for us to know the pattern, how to be under authority, to be appointed under the task to come into his presence. So if you would, chapter uh, the rest of chapter 38 and the rest of chapter 39 goes through the distinctive uh, descriptions of how they completed all of Aaron's robes and garments and established the things for the priests, so that there would be those who would be able to uh, be intermediaries for us. And then it comes to chapter 40, and all of this preparation to build the tabernacle, here's basically what it says. Let me read for you from chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall place the ark of the testimony there, and you shall screen the ark with a veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it. You shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. And you shall set up the altar of burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings and it shall be holy. And you shall anoint the altar burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and the altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. 
and you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall anoint them, even as you have anointed their father, that they may minister as priests to me, and their anointing shall qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded, so he did. And you'll notice the emphasis there of the last verse, as he was commanded, so he did. The emphasis is upon obeying. The emphasis is upon he was appointed to it, he fulfilled his appointment. He was instructed to do this under authority, he did it. He completed it. Now, wonderful description here. I don't know if you took note of it or not, but the tabernacle was built from the inside out. It was assembled from the inside out. The exact opposite of what we would have normally thought. You know, the way we build a house is we build the walls and then we fill out the interior and then we bring in the furnishings and finally we bring the people in. But the way God builds his house is he puts his presence there first, the testimony of him, and then he assembles the things around him until they fill all the way out. And the fact of the matter is that is how God comes into you. You're not ready for the presence of God when he decides to make his entrance into your life. He comes into your presence and then he begins to assemble those things outward with you. But the fact of the matter is, it's the opposite of this sequence in how that you approach the Lord. I don't know if you you realize that or not. The typical person who does not know the Lord first must deal with a priest, an intermediary. Someone speaks for the Lord to him. Someone has to be a go-between. Somebody has to carry a message to him, and he has to consider it. And he woos him and draws him, and he says, come, come to the presence of the Lord. Invite the Lord to come to you. In other words, make your dwelling place with God. Let God make his dwelling place in you. Let us assemble the tabernacle in your life. That's really what it's about. It's it's the simple picture of how we come to know the Lord. And then the next thing that he does after meeting with the, the witness, the priest, the intermediary, then he has to come, the next thing that's in the list, is to come to terms with the oil. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to bathe him and and woo him and give him a sweet fragrance and draw him, you know, unto the Lord. The next thing in the sequence is to go to the laver. And when the priests used to go to the laver, they had to wash themselves. They had to go up to this water and wash their hands and their feet. And, and, the, and the first thing that this person has to do to come to the presence of the Lord, he must repent. He's had a witness speak to him of the truth to be his intermediary, to invite him. He's had the work of the Holy Spirit upon his heart. Now he must repent. In effect, he must wash his hands before the Lord. Then he must go to the altar so that the work of the Messiah can be done for him, so that he'll take and receive this acceptable sacrifice, so that there can be a sacrifice on the altar you know, before God, so God will view and say, that there's the shedding of blood, thus the forgiveness of sin. Can you see the sequence, brethren? You know, every person comes to this. Every person who comes to faith must go through this sequence. 
The next is the sweet incense that was on the gold altar prayer. The person asked to speak to the Lord, offer up to the Lord. The next is the lamp. The lamp caused the light so that they might receive the knowledge of God, the enlightenment of God, to know who the character of God is, that you're in his presence. Then there's the table, which was the bread of service. You must learn to be a servant. You have to understand that, you know, to be to to be with this God, he's the God and you're the servant. Then you go through the the veil and you come before the ark. And there you're before the very throne of grace and mercy. And you receive mercy and forgiveness from God. You're assured that your sins have been covered. We are told that we are to go boldly before this mercy seat. Most people usually don't. You know, they usually have to be kind of dragged and, and you have to be real, you know, they're, they're a little fearful. I can assure you that if the, if the temple was constructed and I could have the opportunity to walk in there, I could tell you I would do it with great fear and trembling. And that's basically the way the person walks into the presence of the Lord, with great fear and trembling. And they're assured to receive mercy from God. And in this, under this mercy seat, is an interesting thing waiting for them. In the ark is God's commandments. The same tablets that Moses brought down off the mountain. You know, I, as I look and I see the spiritual maturity of various people in their life, it seems to me that they've started off right, but they haven't finished their journey. Oh, yeah, they've gone this thing with the, the priest and the Holy Spirit, and they've gone in and repented, and yeah, they got the sacrifice. But it seems to me that like there's a lot of people that they get to the prayer thing, but they kind of stop there. They get in, they smell the sweet fragrance in the holy place, in the sanctuary of God, but they don't get further enlightened, and they got a real problem with the servant business. And some of them stop there. And some of them say, there's nothing behind the veil for me. My faith is, is just uh, Jesus. There's nothing behind that veil for me. There's no, there's no Ark of the Covenant or Mercy Seat. See, everything I got, it's back out there on the altar. You know, that's, my, that's it. That's it for me. Or some that get in there, they say, oh no, I got the Mercy Seat. But I don't want that thing that's sitting down in that box. I don't want those Ten Commandments. I don't want those two tablets. But I have news for you, brethren. In this new covenant, the key thing that is promised to us is that those tablets are written on the tablets of our heart. And I have tried to explain to you before, the heart is where the Ark of the Covenant of you is at, the Holy of Holies, you know, before the Lord. That's part of your faith, too. That's part of the faith, too. You know, um, I I have to uh, make a confession to you. For the last 15 years, um, since the Lord renewed my Hebrew background in my life, and I began uh, to minister to my Jewish brethren, to be observant, uh, to my heritage, to keep Sabbath, to wear a 
kippah and a talit and and to, to study the Torah and teach the Torah. I must admit to you and tell you that because of my background and training and because it was more common in the society, especially in the Christian faith, that we all know the law is not for us anymore. Those Ten Commandments, they don't apply to us anymore. Well, I tell you, it's been my journey for the last 15 years. I've now come to the point where, for the life of me, I can't understand how anybody could think that way. Every symbol of our faith has been established by a holy God who made these things. How is it possible that the key and most important things are the things that have been discarded in the course of this God manifesting himself to us? You know what I think it is? I think we live in the midst of a land where we've made a new God. I think that the average person who calls themselves a Christian and a believer needs to reevaluate which God is he in fact serving. I'm serious about this. There are so many distortions about the God that I read about here in this book by people who claim to observe him and deny the ark of the covenant and what is in it. How is that possible that we can be receiving the mercy of that God? Because the most important things that he placed within it, the most important things that he's marked the new covenant by, his commandments written on our heart, are the things that the most of my brethren deny first. I think the reason is, is because we don't want to obey. We don't like to be appointed. We don't like someone else to be the appointer and us the appointed. We want to be the appointer. We want to say we're in charge. You know, that's your basic thing for idolatry. You see, and if you have an idol, you get to put the idol where you want to put him. See, I want to put him on the mantle today. No, I don't like it there. Let's put him in the bathroom today. See, that's the benefit of having an idol. You get to put God where you want God to be. I don't want God to see me today. Put him over there. That's what the thinking is. This God, you can't put him on a shelf. This God's already appointed the place where he will be. He said, I'm going to be there and I'm going to watch. And we'll determine what you do to me with regard to me. When you come into my presence, you will do it this way. You're not going to go put me over here when you decide to. And, the, and, and it's part of the reason why God is so adamant with regard to the, where the place I put my name, you will not change. You won't decide to go set up an altar somewhere else. You'll put it where I appoint it to be. You'll do it after the manner and the pattern that I set forth, not the one that you set forth. And the fact is, I have great, great concern. I see a lot of people starting to follow the pattern of this, but I don't see very many following through. To the extent that the very symbols of faith 
that this God has established on the world. You know, I just wonder how will the Christian world respond when the Jews decide to re-put that temple and tabernacle up in Jerusalem? How will they respond? It's the pattern. It's, it's, it's exactly as Moses has said. They'll follow that pattern. It's the symbols for us. Will they identify with those symbols? Will they identify with those things? Or will they say, no, 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 that's not right. That can't be right. Let's not do that. Because if they say, let's not do that, let's not be a part of that, they got a different God. They have a different God. Not this one. This one that spoke to Moses in a burning bush and showed him a pattern and said, do it this way. That bothers me. It bothers me that I am asked by people in the last two years who are sincere. I'm, I'm serious. Who are very sincere. Who want to follow the Lord. And their most common question to me is, should we... Are those commandments real? Is, is God's Ten Commandments still real? Is, is the fourth commandment, is Sabbath still a, a commandment for, for mankind? I thank God that they're finally asking the question. Because I, it's wonderful. In my lifetime, they're finally starting to ask. Finally starting to ask. Wait a minute, what about those other commandments? Uh, are, are we supposed to be obeying them? Is, is there something about this temple thing that, that, that applies to us? And whereas before, other voices have said, oh, that's just a bunch of Jewish stuff. Not this book. This book doesn't say it that way. It says, yes, that certain ones were appointed to establish it, but it wasn't just a Levitical thing. There were men of Judah and Dan who made the objects. But that didn't mean that the tribe of Judah got to just walk in there whenever they wanted to. He appointed priests to do the service, you know, for the things that happened. Now listen, this is kind of interesting. I've just read that first portion to you, and now I'm going to show you a great mystery that exists within the Torah. Follow along with me and listen as I read from verse 17 again. Isaiah, or excuse me, Exodus 40, verse 17. Now it came about in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was erected. And Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle. And he put the covering in the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded him. Then he took the testimony and he put it into the ark. And he attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and he set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord had commanded him. Then he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil, and he set the arrangement of the bread in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lighted the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he placed the gold altar in the tent of the meeting in front of the veil, and he burned fragrant incense on it just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle and of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. 
And from it Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. It's, it's a repeat. We just read that. Remember, it said he erected it after this pattern. Now it turns around and it says it again. But there's one slight difference. One slight difference. Everything starts working. The lamp starts lighting. The incense is going up. The bread is on the table. The water is in the laver. The sacrifice is on the altar. It all started working. And it says there in the next verse, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, brethren, this is the difference between being the real thing and being religious. The symbol doesn't do you any good if the substance is not there too. That's the difference between religious people and spiritual people. Unless the cloud fills your tabernacle, it's just so much religiosity. Now I'm, I'm basically saying to you, you got to follow the pattern you got to follow the pattern. And more than that, it's got to be put into operation. The laver has got to have water to wash with. The altar has got to have a fire on it and fuel and a sacrifice. The lamp has to be trimmed and cast forth light. The altar of incense must have incense and must be sending forth the sweet fragrance. The table of showbread must have the bread of service ready. All of those things have to be there. Then the presence of God comes into the place. And what's more important, the stuff or the presence of God? See, the whole purpose is for him to make his dwelling place. The purpose is not to be religious or liturgical. Or look good, you know. There's a difference between singing in the shower and singing on a stage. Everybody sings good in the shower. You know, you can get enough echo in there, it sounds good. And there's lots of people, my great concern is, is that that we kind of sing in the shower and we, we, we have all the right objects and we're kind of shuffling them around and so, but no presence. Oh, presence. It's not done. It's not finished being erected until the presence of God, the cloud of his presence is there. That's what it's all about and why it's for. Do not be satisfied with the Lord until he fills you with the cloud of his presence. And if he's not filling you, it's because something's out of order. He won't do it. Until all the play, all the things are in their proper place, and they're ready to render the service. Now, if this God is so disciplined and so detailed with regard to that, 
maybe this is part of the reason why we just can't seem to get the rest of it to work if we keep doing it our own way. Maybe that's the reason why we don't get our prayers answered. Maybe that's the reason why why things don't seem to go quite right. Maybe we need to go into the tabernacle and we need to find out, is, is everything in its proper place? Have I got water in the labor? Have I got you know the table of showbread? Have I got, have I got that stuff ready? Did I stick the Ark of the Covenant in the right sanctuary area? You know, are those commandments in the Ark? Or did I forget those or pull them out and throw them away? Is everything according to the pattern that the Lord, he who has appointed it, is it according to that pattern? Because I believe there are other patterns out there that are being substituted for this pattern. And they don't yield the same results. They don't yield. Um, we don't like those commandments. We don't like the ark. We want a different kind of forgiveness. Was a different kind of whatever. The pat, you know, the the symbols are there, and they're there. The haftor portion that goes with this is a parallel. The haftor, the after the Torah portion, is a series of teachings that comes from the rest of the Old Testament, called the the Ketubah and the Nevi'im, the prophets, and uh, uh, from the Tanakh, you know, the Old Testament, uh, which is to follow after the pattern. And the, and the portion that is appointed uh, for this particular Sedra portion comes from 1 Kings um, 7 and 8. And I want you to... Um, this, this is a fascinating passage of Scripture. and it, It's rare that I find the uh, Haftor portion is so compelling compared to the Torah portion. But in this particular case, I think it, uh, it, it really was a proper uh, selection with this passage. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 7, toward the end of the, um, end of the chapter, verse 48, it says, And Solomon made all the furniture which was in the house of the Lord, the golden altar and the golden table on which was the bread of presence, and it goes on from there. And we're going to now hear about the permanent temple that God permitted David to have a heart to build, but allowed his son to build. Now, the first one was done by Moses. You would think, okay, that's the pattern. There's no way we can replicate that. There's no way we could make it better. But no, God says, well, that was a, that was a temporary thing. That was mobile. Now, the people don't, aren't mobile anymore. God, make, make a permanent dwelling with us, was the heart of David. God, I, I, I want your presence to be with us. You know, come here into Israel, live with us. It's said of David that he was the man who sought the very heart of God. David was a murderer, an adulterer. Kind of an interesting, he wasn't the oldest or firstborn of his family. Um, had a terrible family life. Sons rebelled against him lost children. Uh, people actually kind of hated him in the latter part of his life. But this man, the Bible says, sought the very heart of God. You know why God gives him that attribute? Because of the issue of the tabernacle. God, please come make your dwelling place with us. 
What is the heart of God? To make his dwelling place with men. He got in line with what God really wants. And he wanted the same thing that God wants. God wants to dwell with us. And he wanted God to dwell with us. And he said, God, let me make a house for you. Let me, let me bring you into the land of Israel. We'll make a place for you. Now, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but God never told the children of Israel, there's one particular city that I will choose. He never said that. Moses didn't give that instruction. He didn't say, um, there's one particular place I want to live in the land of Israel. When I get. He didn't tell Moses that. He gave Moses instructions for setting up a tabernacle. But it was David who said, I want the tabernacle to dwell with us permanently. Then God, with David, chose a place. As God had chosen David, so David chose a place along with God. And the place that he chose is this place called Jerusalem. Jerusalem didn't exist until the decision was made to put the altar of God and the house of God in this one place. That's the reason why we got all this problem over Jerusalem. It represents the place where David, who sought the very heart of God, and God agreed, yes, I'll dwell in Jerusalem with all the people of this world. I'll make my dwelling place there. You want to you do business with me? You come to Jerusalem. This will be the place. Let me read for you in chapter 8, where this is the dedication. This is now Solomon performing the role of Moses to establish the temple at Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all of the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all of the holy utensils, which were in the tent, and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the plat place of the ark and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They, they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came about when the priests came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. 
so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built thee a lofty house, a place for thy dwelling forever. Then the king faced about and blessed all of the assembly of Israel, while all of the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over all my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son who shall be born to you, he shall build a house for my name. Interestingly enough, the father has used his son to build the house for him too. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, for I have risen in the place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. Brethren, I, I want to say something to you that's going to sound a little weird, but you, you need to take to heart. If you have not made a relationship with the God who brought the people up out of the land of Egypt, you've not yet made a relationship with the Son of God. Because the Son of God is the one who did it. That's also his deed. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, and thus King Solomon is now about to speak to the Lord and make an agreement representing all of mankind before the living God concerning this place called Jerusalem and the temple. And here's what he says. Verse 23. O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like thee above or on earth beneath, who are keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart after the pattern of my father David. Seeking, you know, the very heart of God. Who has kept with thy servant, my father David, that which thou hast promised him indeed, Thou hast spoken with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thy hand as it is this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that which thou hast promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be confirmed, which thou hast spoken to thy servant, my father David. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry 
and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day toward the place which thou hast said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which thy servant shall pray toward this place. And listen to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel. When they pray toward this place, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. Hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and he comes and he takes an oath before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven and act and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked by bringing this way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Be a judge to his God from this place. Verse 33, when thy people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against thee, if they turn to thee again and confess thy name and pray and make supplication to thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy people Israel and bring them back to the land which thou didst give to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee and they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou didst afflict them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and thy people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on thy land, which thou hast given thy people for an inheritance. If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locusts or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all thy people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward his house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou alone dost know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou hast given to their fathers. Now up to this point is great words. Where's the poor Gentile in this whole process? Oh, God's not forgotten the Gentiles, nor did King Solomon. Listen to what he says. And concerning the foreigner, who's not of this thy people Israel, when he comes from a far country, for thy name's sake, for they will hear of thy great name and thy mighty hand and of thy outstretched arm. When he comes and he prays toward this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to thee in order that all the peoples of the earth may know thy name to fear thee, as do thy people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have been built is called by my name. God's plan. All the Gentiles would worship at this temple. After the manner and pattern of this tabernacle. When thy people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way they shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city which thou hast chosen and the house which I have built for thy name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. King Solomon prayed and he said, Even if the people 
are in a faraway land, if they will turn toward the city and toward this tabernacle and toward this altar, hear their prayer, O God. Because they'll recognize that this is the name of the God who brought us out of the hands of the Egyptians, who became a savior and a redeemer, who created all of heaven and all of earth. Is it not appropriate that the prophecy says that when the Messiah comes back, he sits and rules in Jerusalem? Don't live in our cities. He lives in this dwelling place, this tabernacle, this place that has been established. Verse 46, And when they sin against thee, for there is no man who does not sin, and thou art angry with them, dost deliver them into the enemy, so that they have been taken away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive, and repent and make supplication to thee in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned. And have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. If they return to thee with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who has taken them captive, and pray to thee toward their land, which thou hast given to their fathers in the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause. You know, I don't know if, you, if, if you've ever really quite come to terms with this. You know, here's spiritual Jerusalem in here. There's a real Jerusalem over there. You, in your own heart, like David, whose heart sought the very heart of God, if in your heart you will seek the very heart of God, you want God to make his dwelling place with you. I choose the Lord. You're welcome in my life. He says he'll come and make this tabernacle. It has to be made after this pattern. And we can see the example of it over there in Jerusalem. Well, at the moment, I tell you, there's no tabernacle, there's no temple in Jerusalem. But it is still the place where God has put his name. And by recognizing that first, you do the thing of the heart first, like David did. The fact of the matter is, David lived in a day when the tabernacle wasn't sitting in Jerusalem either. But David's heart was toward it. And the same can be for us. We would be like David today. And when Yeshua comes back, he'll be like King Solomon in the establishing of the thing for us as well. Verse 48, if they return to thee with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray toward their land which thou hast given to thy fathers and the city which thou hast chosen and the house which I built for thy name. The Lord will then maintain our cause. It's an interesting agreement. It's a very interesting agreement. Verse 54 says, And it came about that when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. And he stood and he blessed all of the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord, 
who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all of his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. Same thing could be said this day of his servant, King Solomon. Even though that temple and tabernacle is out there, his promises are still good. Still the same God. Verse 57, may the Lord our God be with us, for he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Words mean a lot. King Solomon's words mean a lot for us, you know, in this, in this case. With regard to understanding the tabernacle and the temple, with regard to understanding Jerusalem and what it means. Every person who belongs to the Lord, has a stake in Jerusalem and in the Temple Mount. Every person. There's an agreement that says if you'll turn and look toward that, seek the very heart of God, the very dwelling place of where God wants to dwell, to be here in the earth, there's an agreement that says that where Solomon prayed for you and said, Lord, hear his prayer. Hear his supplication. Maintain for his cause. That's the reason why the psalmist says, you know, if I forget Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its cunning. You might as well cut off your hand. You know, what good is it? You know, what good is it if we don't have Jerusalem to look to? If we don't have the presence of God, then what good is this life? There is no good in it. It's just an existence until death. The uh, I, I'm not really quite sure how to necessarily end this lesson because it, it it's to me it's like it's a start. This lesson is a start, not not an ending. Verse sixty one kind of gives a little bit of a application. It says, "Let your heart there be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in His statutes, to keep His commandments, as it is." this day. The problem is, is that we live in a place and a time when not everybody says that his commandments still exist today. Oh, those commandments, they existed back then, but they don't exist anymore today. And they speak of things which they do not understand. You know, when the Sadducees came to argue with the Lord about the resurrection, he, he said a rather interesting thing to him. He said, uh, Ye do err in that you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. You know what Scripture is referring to? The Tanakh. New Testament wasn't written yet. He was referring to the Old Testament. He was referring to the teaching of Moses. Ye do err that you know not what Moses said. You know, those words are very appropriate for today for a whole bunch of my Christian brethren. You do err, brethren, in that you know not the Scripture. 
nor the power of God. His indwelling presence in his dwelling place. You don't know either one. You know, you go through, you, you, you're so afraid of following the pattern that you think it's legalism. You know what? Obeying God's commandments is called obedience. It's not called legalism. Legalism is when you follow man's commandments. That's legalism. And any man who would come in and say, this pattern is no more for us, he's either got a different God or he doesn't know the scripture. And it's the teaching of men. It's not the teaching of the Lord or of Moses or of his servants and his prophets. Anybody who would say it's different from this pattern of the tabernacle doesn't have it. Because you don't get the indwelling and the work of the Holy Spirit until the tabernacle is ready to be filled with the presence of the Lord. And I think that all we have to do is just submit to the Lord and the tabernacle comes into its proper place. If we just say we will obey the Lord, we choose the Lord. Lord, you're welcome here. You know, come make your dwelling place here. He arranges things properly. He gets them set up correctly. He gets them working correctly and then he comes in and he fills. But don't be shocked and surprised if in the Holy of Holies are Ten Commandments. Don't be shocked or surprised because the indwelling of the presence of God won't be there without him. It's for us, you know, to enter in and find out what all is there, you know, for us. Amen. In First um, Kings 8, verse 23, it says where Moses or King Solomon began to speak. And he said that he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who art keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to thy servants who walk before thee with all of their heart. And I guess that's what I would encourage you guys to do. Boy, you know, all of your heart. You know, take, you know, and get the tabernacle set up in, in your life. Make sure it's after the right pattern. Make sure it's for the right God. And then wait you know, for the Lord to come in and fill the presence uh, for you, that this is the covenant that we have with the Lord. So if you would, bow with me, let us pray, and then we'll listen to this music. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for your Torah. Thank you, Lord, for uh, you being a God that desires to make a dwelling place with us. And, Lord, we do pray, and we say, Lord, we want you to make your dwelling place with us. Even as David desired these things, so we desire them as well, Lord. And we desire that there might be a dwelling place for you that we might be able to come and present to you our concerns and that you might maintain our cause, that you might hear and forgive us, O Lord. So it's in Yeshua's name, our great high priest of that tabernacle, that we pray and make all these requests. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.